0: about. I got it when I was at the beach with my daughter, Emerson Rose. It was the first morning of our trip, and Emerson and I spent it playing in the sand and walking along the beach. In front of our hotel, about 15 feet offshore in a calm area of the ocean, there was a floating trampoline. Pretty cool, huh? I'd never seen that before. It looked like it was intended to be fun, but was it something I really wanted to do? Not so much wading in the ocean was just fine with me but i am a mother now and i could see that emerson was afraid but curious as a single mom i find myself in this situation a lot there's some adventure that doesn't appeal to me but there's no one i can turn to and say your turn honey take our daughter on the trampoline (laughs) same thing when there's a spider on the wall above the bed that eight-legged intruder's gotta go and it's all me so We swam out to the trampoline and bounced around for a while, and then Emerson wanted to jump off, but she was scared. So I said, oh, sure, let's do it. It'll be fun, really fun. I'll go first. Now, you and I both know that I did not want to jump off that trampoline, but I don't want to teach that to her. I don't want to project my overblown, imaginative worries onto her wide-eyed, innocent hope— The thing about this floating trampoline is that it wasn't very bouncy. And what little bounce it had was weird and off-kilter, so you couldn't really plan your trajectory. But my daughter was waiting and watching, so what could I do? I flew off the trampoline into a huge belly flop. Belly flop looks funny. It even sounds funny. But I'm here to say it's not funny. My stomach, my arms, my legs, all my skin burned. I was instantly red and tender all over, but I didn't want Emerson to see that I was in serious pain. That wasn't the lesson I wanted to teach. I knew she could do it, and I knew that she would be fine. So I popped my head out of the water and said, that was fun, give it a try. She jumped straight off, loved it, of course, and did it again and again and again. When we got back to the beach, I saw that I had a long cut on my leg from the water. Emerson noticed the blood, and I shrugged it off with some stupid excuse. I was in agony, but I didn't want to cry in front of Emerson. Instead, I got a rum-infused coconut beverage from the guy walking down the beach, and I subtly iced my wound. Now, I look at that scar on my leg, and I wonder if I did the right thing. Should I have let Emerson know that I was hurt? Should I have called over a preferably cute lifeguard for some first aid? Why didn't I do that? Why did I hide the truth about what was going on with me? Did I do it for her or for me? Was I trying to be cool or tough? There's an emotional experience embedded in that scar. There's a lesson locked in. In my scrapbook from 1999, there's a fortune cookie fortune that says, your luck has been completely changed today. But you don't change in a day. You learn things when life presents you with an opportunity and you're ready to receive it. When Desperate Housewives came along, I was, like many actresses in Hollywood, a big has-been. I've made no secret of that. I never expected to get a second chance, and though I must have saved that fortune in hope that everything actually could change overnight. When it did, when Desperate Housewives became a hit, I suddenly had the job and security and affirmation that I'd given up on long before. Over time, when they don't come true, you lose sight of your dreams. Years go by, and you look back and wonder how you got so far without starting a band or making a sculpture, doing the things that you wanted to do but couldn't because now you have a family and a mortgage. So when my dream actually became a reality, my response wasn't better late than never. I wanted to live it, not as a 20-year-old who desired it, but as a 40-year-old who'd worked hard for it but thought her opportunity had passed. It woke me up to the realization that though life is unpredictable, things can change for the better. Dreams we thought were long past can still come true, and that we increase our chances of that happening by believing that we are deserving of golden brown buttered toast and success and happiness. Mmm, I'm getting hungry. This book itself was a journey for me. Writing it, forced me to face my self-doubts and fears, the same kind of struggles that this book contemplates. I kept thinking, I need to read this book. In fact, I'll probably be the first one to buy a copy because then A, I'll know at least one copy sold, and B, I really will be able to remind myself of the lessons I've learned every once in a while. I wrote most of it sitting on the floor of my living room. I like the floor. There's no place to fall. My hope is that you'll listen to it, maybe, with a glass of wine, and you'll laugh a little and feel a little inspired. I'm done making silent self-sacrifices. I'm done hiding the truth. You'll see that if I can have these feelings and work through them, then you can too. If you've ever felt like a spicy gumbo of fear and confidence, despair and hope, desire and satisfaction, mother and child, pretty and ugly, strong and weak, then keep listening. The journey's a whole lot easier if we take it together. And now, another actress is going to read you Burnt Toast, because like I said before, I not only need to read this book, I need to listen to it, too.
1: Chickening Out Imagine this. It's a sunny Sunday, and you're meeting some friends for a picnic at a lovely spot that's mere minutes from your home. Hey, it's a fantasy. We might as well make it convenient. You're in a great mood, and you even brought a yummy gourmet lunch that someone else prepared. Again, fantasy. When you arrive at your idyllic, balmy destination, it turns out there's a lake, with an outcropping of rock jutting out over it to form a natural high dive. It's high enough to be scary, but low enough to be safe. There are screams of joy as an endless line of people jump off. Okay, now, here's where I want you to drop the fantasy and consider the situation as if it were real. The question is, are you the kind of person who climbs right up, takes in the view for a fraction of a second, then plunges off the edge without a second thought? Or... Do you stand there trying to get your guts up to jump and after a few minutes decide it's too scary and climb back down, admitting defeat? Are you the daredevil or the wimp? The good news, I hope, is that I'm not here to talk about how brave the first person is and how the second person is a pluckless chicken who should learn to face the world with guts and determination. No, the way I see it is, if you're either of these people, you're lucky. You know what makes you happy, you know your limits, and that's that. But some of us are stuck in the middle, making life a whole lot more complicated than that. I'm the one who found myself standing frozen at the top of a 25-foot-high rock platform looking down at a placid Sedona lake. I'm the one who stood there, not for 10 minutes, not for half an hour. I stood there for over an hour trying to convince myself to jump. After a good hour and fifteen minutes, I finally jumped off that stupid rock. By then, I was so tired of arguing with myself that I was ready to kill myself anyway, so what harm could it possibly do? When I surfaced, there was some biker guy by the edge of the lake clapping for me. He said, That's the longest I've seen anyone stand up there looking and still jump. That's me. I may be scared and conflicted about something, but I go through with it. And for what? Was it fun? Are you kidding me? It wasn't even close to fun. All I gained from my jump was the right to tell myself that I hadn't given up. I'd passed another self imposed test. Yay me. It's part of my everyday life that top of a cliff fear, hyperanalysis, internal conflict. That circular contemplation of how I feel, who I am, and who I want to be that keeps me paralyzed on clifftops for ridiculously long periods of time. I've always doubted my abilities and had trouble acknowledging my own success. Take a bet I once made regarding a limousine. If you think I stood on that cliff for a long time, let me tell you, the limo thing went on for years. It started when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was living in North Hollywood. My next-door neighbor, I'll call him Ned. I don't want anyone out there to think I'm the kind of friend who reveals personal details, so to protect the innocent who knew me then when they didn't have to worry about tabloids and the not-so-innocent who know me now, I've changed names throughout this book. Ned didn't have a refrigerator, and one day he asked to borrow ice, and we became friends. Anyway, along the way, Ned and I made a deal. It was after I got my first part played.